This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He's risen. Praise him. You may have a seat. Thank you. Well, allow me as well to say th- good morning and welcome to any of you who are visiting with us. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And I want to also greet any of you who can't be here physically with us, wherever you may be. The Lord bless you richly. Well, at the risk of uh, stating the obvious, I want to say that Easter is a day when the Church of Christ gathers to celebrate and reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead and the various details of his resurrection the various accounts of his resurrection are found in the four biblical gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John and as believers as Christians we believe that the gospels along with all scripture are accurate historical documents accurate true witnesses to the life and ministry and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And for us, it's essential, I would say, to remember as believers that the Christian faith is built upon the resurrection of Jesus, not as some sort of uh, inspirational idea, you know, some sort of mystical hope, but as an immutable fact of history. You see, at the very heart of the gospel, which is good news, is a literal, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who met the resurrected Jesus, who was confronted and transformed by the resurrected Jesus from a murderer of Christians to a follower of Christ, He would later write to the church at Corinth, and he would say to them in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, he says, For I deliver unto you that which I also received. I deliver unto you as of first importance, he says, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, in other words, he was really dead, And then that he was raised on the third day and according to the scriptures. And then Paul goes on to say that Jesus gave convincing proofs of his resurrection because he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to the apostles. And Paul says he appeared to more than 500 on one time. And so we believe in a bodily resurrection, a literal historical resurrection of Jesus. And as Paul says, both the death and resurrection of Jesus are at the very core of what we call the good news, the gospel. He says they are of first importance. And that means to us, if you're a Christian this morning, that we cannot compromise either and we cannot separate either. What God has joined together, let no man separate. There's no good news on Friday, on Good Friday without an empty tomb on Sunday. (laughs) And so we remember both death and resurrection. And in fact, 
some theologians, as they study and chronicle the life and ministry of Jesus, they divide, into, they divide it into two separate uh, states. His humiliation, incarnation, suffering, and his exaltation, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Humiliation and exaltation. Uh, both belong together. Both are at the core of the gospel. And Jesus himself would say several times that the Old Testament scriptures foretold all of this. This was not something conjured up by the later church that we may find this written in the historic uh, um, uh, Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Speaking to two disciples, you might remember, uh, who were confused by all this, Jesus said in Luke 24, uh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Not simply all that I've said now, but all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ, that is the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Humiliation and exaltation. It's a constant theme throughout the scriptures, suffering and then glory. And so I say this and I repeat again that at the very core, at the very heart of the Christian message, of the Christian gospel, which is good news, lie both, lie the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. Our faith is a claim not only that Jesus died, but that he was raised and he is still alive. He has ascended into the presence of the Father. His exaltation began then on that Easter morning as we refer to it at the resurrection. But he ascended 40 days later. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He now reigns from heaven as the risen Lord with all authority and dominion waiting until all his enemies are made his footstool and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. These things we confess by faith it is the historic Orthodox Christian faith. And so we ask, in what sense is the resurrection of first importance? Why is it of first importance? Well, think about it for a minute. Everything hangs upon this momentous, factual event. Every promise, every claim made of Jesus becomes absolutely meaningless if he did not rise from the dead. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, as Tom quoted. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. He said, I am the bread of life. On and on Jesus spoke and made such claims and promises. Every one of them becomes meaningless if he did not rise from the dead. As Paul said, if Christ is not raised, our faith is futile. <laughs> we are still in our sins and we are, the, we are the, the, the people most to be pitied among everyone else. If he's not raised, Jesus is a sham. If he's not raised, he's just a false teacher. He's another self-proclaimed sort of a wisdom teacher or guru with nice ideals. He's a liar, or as C.S. Lewis once says, maybe he's just a lunatic, you see. 
if he did not rise from the dead, but he has risen from the dead. I believe that he has risen from the dead. He is this, therefore, he is truly whom he claimed to be. He is the son of the living God, God incarnate. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. Indeed, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other name under heaven whereby you can be saved. Because, why? He has risen from the dead. And therefore, beloved and friends and any who are hearing me, maybe for the first time, the words of Jesus of Nazareth must be taken with absolute seriousness, with profound seriousness. He is the resurrection and the life. And so we reflect this morning on two implications of his resurrection, or we might say two benefits of his resurrection. How does believing in the resurrected Christ benefit me? How does it How does it? Uh, benefit anyone who comes to have faith in him. And I, I take as my primary text one we read uh, just a few moments together, Romans 4, 25, and then secondly, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Benefits of the resurrection of Jesus for those who believe. The first is he was raised for our justification, Romans 4, 25. And he was raised for our glorification, 1 Corinthians chapter. 15. So reflect on this with me. Hear, hear this out. I'll read again the verse from Romans 4.25. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now if we're to understand this uh, before we look into the details, first of all, <clears throat> we have to grasp that the good news of Easter is tied to this basic teaching, a basic biblical uh, concept that Jesus is a representative man, that Jesus is a representative human being, that whatever he has done, whatever he has experienced, whatever Jesus has accomplished or achieved, he did this as a substitute. He did this on behalf of others. He did this as a representative human being. Just as the first Adam, the first man, was a representative human being, Christ, as Paul calls him, the last Adam, is also a representative human being. And so I want you to see that as a basic principle in order to understand what he means in verse 25. And then you will see there that he was both humiliated and exalted as a substitute. Humiliation, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Exaltation, he was raised for our justification. Substitution, for our, for our, on both sides of the verse. <clears throat> Did you see that, right? That what he experienced being delivered up and being raised, he experienced on behalf of others, he says, for our. Now, the first half is not the hard half to understand, especially coming from Good Friday. If you were here <clears throat> Friday night, <clears throat> what is he saying there when he says that he was delivered up or handed over, your translation might say, for our trespasses? <clears throat> well, it's not hard to understand. What Paul is saying that is in, in his sufferings and in his death, 
Jesus was judicially, judicially delivered up or handed over on account of our sins, because of our sins. Our sins were the judicial basis or judicial reason of his death. He was condemned because of our transgressions. He became the object of the Father's wrath because of our sins, you see. Not his own, because he was the sinless Lamb of God. And Scripture states this in many places, many ways. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Substitution for us, right? First Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, you see. Substitution. The prophet Isaiah, centuries before, said, The Lord laid, has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Substitution. Paul, from Galatians chapter 3, would say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that is, the condemnation that comes under the, God, the law of God. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us substitution you see so that's the first part right of this of this uh, of two 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 part verse the humiliation of christ that is the first part that is the 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 part i think is easier to see i hope you see it because what that is saying is that first of all you are a sinner that all of us sin and fall short of the of the glory of god but god gave his son sent his son out of the depth of his profound love for people like you and me that he might be delivered up handed over for our for your transgressions and for that to have any impact on your life you need to be able to personalize that and not just hear it and think about it in a sort of general abstract way you know yeah jesus died for our sins no can you personalize these and genuinely say that out of faith in your heart. He bore my sins on the cross in his body. Christ suffered once for my sins, the just for the unjust. The Lord laid the iniquity of me upon him. Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for me when he hung on that tree, you see. Well, that's, that's where it all begins, and that's the first half, and I hope you're able to, by faith, personalize that. May God give you grace and faith to see that. Place yourself in that. Now, the second part is a part that can become a little confusing, <clears throat> and it says on the exaltation side of the verse uh, that he was raised... For our justification. Now this brings us here to Easter Sunday, right? He was raised for our justification. And what's confusing is that for most of us, we associate his sufferings with our justification, right? His, his, his crucifixion for our, our justification. He was crucified. He paid for the, the penalty for my justification and so forth. So in what sense is my justification uh, connected not only to his suffering? but to his resurrection. For Paul's clear here. He was raised for our justification. Well, first, let's reflect 
on what justification means uh, in Paul's pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in the book of Romans. The concept of justification, not just the word, but the concept as Paul is using it here in the book of Romans is, is, is the, and I'm, t- and I'm presenting you the historic, orthodox, or Protestant, or biblical understanding of what justification means in the writings of Paul in particular in the New Testament. Justification is the free and instantaneous declaration of God whereby he accounts guilty human beings as just and righteous. (laughs) The instantaneous, free, complete declaration of God whereby he accounts guilty human beings as just and righteous. And you say, on what basis? Certainly not on the basis of who I am because I'm not just. I'm not intrinsically righteous. Truly, as we sang, I am a sinner through and through, you say. On what basis? On the basis of Christ's obedience and sufferings credited to that believer by faith, you say. And so Paul has been writing in Romans chapter uh, 2 and 3 and now culminates in chapter 4 and defending what he calls or we call justification by faith or by faith alone. We are declared righteous by God, not made righteous until the end. <laughs> but we are declared righteous. He is the justifier of the ungodly on the basis of a righteousness that's foreign to us, outside of us, but credited to us, the righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's justification. So then, what is the connection between my being justified and Christ being raised from the dead? Well, we first have to decide, not to be technical, but we first have to decide uh, how that little connective preposition for is being used in this whole verse. He was, he was handed over or delivered up for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. Well, there's several uh, takes on this, and, and, and many people take the, the, the use of for as being parallel on both sides. In other words, um, that for could mean because, and it means because on both sides of that verse. And so he, we would put it this way, that what Paul is saying in a very balanced, parallel way, uh, because he's using the same word for, is that Jesus was, was handed up or delivered up because of our transgressions, looking backwards, and he was raised because of our uh, justification. Now, many take that view. I don't think that's the correct view. Uh, I think there's that, 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 that the, uh, so if you're taking notes, you better X that out, okay? <clears throat> I'm, so, I'm watching some of you. It's like, <laughs> the, I'm not alone in taking this view. Uh, excellent New Testament scholars and John Murray and the, the, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards and others don't see it as in just basically trying to keep the balance on the, this, of that preposition. Um, uh, what, the force of what Paul is saying lies in, which is why we started with this, lies in the humiliation, exaltation pattern, you see. That's where the significance of what Paul is saying here lies. Uh, what Paul is saying, is, is what he's presenting is an antith- antithetical parallelism. 
Not, a, not an equal parallelism. And Paul likes doing this sort of thing. The first one looks backwards. See, why was Jesus uh, delivered up? He was delivered up because of my transgressions. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? This one looks forward. So that I might be justified, you see. And so humiliated and then exalted. The first one is retrospective. The second one is prospective. The first one looks backward and is causal. The second one looks forward and has to do with the purpose of it all. This is an antithetical parallelism. They're done with all the technical stuff. <laughs> done with that, okay? But let me just point out that Paul likes to do this, okay? This is one of his ways of of, of communicating the richness of the gospel, he, he sums it up in little antithetical parallelism, such as this. Speaking of, G, of the eternal son uh, who became Jesus, he said, he who was rich became poor on our behalf that we who are poor might become rich in him. There's an antithetical parallelism. And perhaps probably uh, a, a better one is 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he says, for our sake, he, that is the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin. Backwards, right? Causal. So that, forward, uh, exaltation, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, you see. And so I think, he's, this is Paul, and he's doing the same thing here. He was delivered up backwards for our transgressions, because of our transgressions. But Sunday morning, <laughs> he was raised, he was exalted for forward-looking for our justification that we might be justified. So now the last question is, well, how so? How so? If it is looking forward in that sense, well, you might say, I thought the... The basis of our justification was solely the payment uh, and, and of, of, of my sins that he, that he made when he was crucified and his righteousness credited to me. In fact, in chapter 5 here, in just a few verses, Paul will say we're justified by his blood, right? That's looking backwards. But here he says he was raised for our justification. Well, I think here lies the answer. Again, this is not my invention. Um, uh, I think the unexpressed or implied answer lies in what we started with here, our union with Christ, our solidarity with Christ. The fact that everything he did, he did as a representative person, as a substitute for others. Now, that's not stated directly in verse 25, but it's part of the larger context of what Paul is writing in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And so, uh, we might say that the resurrection was, first of all, Christ's justification or Christ's vindication, you see. Now, and I am in Him, and because I am in Him, I am justified with them. Now, I know that sounds a bit odd if it's not, because justification uh, doesn't apply to Jesus in the same sense. He doesn't need to be declared uh, righteous. He is righteous, but the term dikaiao, justification, means more than simply forgiveness of sins. It means to be vindicated, you see. 
uh, to be de- to be seen finally as just, though in his case, he always was just. In our case, we are only just in him, the just one, if you're able to follow that. And so, uh, for example, uh, when he was raised, he was vindicated. He was proven to be uh, who he was and, 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 be, and, and to have achieved what he said he would have achieved. Um, Romans 1, Paul says at the very beginning of this book that Jesus, follow this, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness when? By His resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God. Was He always the Son of God? Absolutely. But He was declared to be publicly vindicated as being the Son of God when He was raised by, from the dead by the Holy Spirit of power. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3.18, Paul says that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. He uses the very same word, dikaiao, which we translate justified. And this refers also to the resurrection. So as we share, if you're a Christian, through faith you're united with Christ. As we share in his humiliation, because he suffered, he paid for our sins. We also share in his vindication, his justification, and we ourselves become justified because we've placed our faith not in someone who simply died, but somebody who died and was raised from the dead and was declared to be the Son of God with power. Think of it this way. If he is not raised, to state it negatively, if he is not raised, there is no justification for you and me. (laughs) For he is not whom he claimed to be and he did not achieve what he claimed to achieve. On what basis could anyone say, could any Christian say that his sufferings truly paid for my sins if he simply died like everyone else and didn't rise from the dead? On what basis can we claim that? As Paul already answered it, he said, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. If Christ is not raised, we are still in our sins. Nothing was accomplished there, you see. Or as someone has put it, a dead Christ is, not, is an unjustified Christ, an unvindicated Christ, but a risen Christ. A risen Christ is a publicly vindicated Christ. The resurrection was God the Father's vindication of the Son. It was God's approval of the Son's work, and it is our approval in Him, our justification in Him. Let me sum it up this way. Thinking about the whole, the whole verse, both the humiliation and the exaltation. Oh, some of you look like you're in theological college right now or something, yeah. Take a deep breath. <laughs> that helps, huh? <laughs> All right, Jesus experienced something on the cross. Condemnation, wrath, so that those who believe in him might not. Jesus experienced something in the resurrection, vindication, that those who believe him might 
also experience, he said. Did you catch that? Jesus experienced something in the cross and his sufferings. Condemnation that believers might not. And Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And Jesus experienced something in his resurrection. Vindication. Declared, proven to be the Son of God, who he is. That we might also, you see, share in that. Our faith is vindicated. Our faith is not futile. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He was raised from the dead. Now, this only makes sense, again, if you see that representation, right, that judicial representation on both sides of the verse. The first side, he is our representative before the judge as our sin bearer. And in the second half, he is our representative before the judge as vindicated, right? As justified as having fulfilled all righteousness. And therefore, since you are in him, you also have his righteousness. I hope that's clear. Class, there'll be an exam, okay? (laughs) That's what I get for teaching seminary on Wednesdays, you know. Oh, so he he was raised, beloved. He was raised that you might rest assured, what? That you are justified. That when he says your sins are all forgiven, this is not some empty phrase or some sort of pie in the sky promise. He was raised from the dead and declared to be who he was and therefore your sins have been atoned for. Amen? Amen. But there's more. (laughs) He was raised for our justification, he was also raised for our glorification. We're more familiar with this. What do I mean? I mean this, that Jesus experienced something more in his resurrection that we might also. Something other, something different from judicial vindication. What did he also experience? He experienced bodily transformation. He was glorified. You understand? Jesus wasn't resuscitated. He was given a resurrection body. He was raised for our justification. He was also raised for our glorification because we are in him and with him in all things. Remember, he is our, our, our substitute. There's a solidarity between the believer and Christ Jesus. And for this, I just turn more briefly on this side. Uh, of, of the second point here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know it to be that great chapter where Paul defends the resurrection of Jesus and its connection to the resurrection of believers. I've already quoted from it earlier, but and Paul says several times, I've said that he said, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul states the positive, and he says, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, and we believe that. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. A euphemism for dead. For as by a man came death, he's talking about the first man, Adam. By a man, he's talking about Christ, the last Adam, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Meaning not only his, but our resurrection. 
For as in Adam, the first man, all die, so also in Christ, the last Adam, shall all be made alive, but each in his order. And what is that order? Christ, the first fruits. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He was raised for our justification. He was raised for our glorification. Christ, the first fruits, and then those who belong to him at his coming. To understand what he means by first fruits, we should appreciate a little bit of the background of their agricultural co- context and, and, uh, and, the, and the Old Testament uh, sacrifices and offerings that they would bring. You know, the Israelites, they would bring their first fruits as offerings. First fruits would be that beginning of the harvest that spoke of the whole harvest. They would bring their first fruit offerings to God as a representative portion for the whole. And the offering marked two things, the beginning of the harvest and the fact that the entire harvest belonged to God, you see. They were connected. It was the beginning and there was a connection. The whole harvest belongs to God. Pretty soon, it's going to be May. And some of you are going to go pick cherries. And you're going to taste the first fruits. When you taste the first fruits, it points to a greater harvest when all the trees, right, come into that ripeness. Well, Christ is the first fruits. Jesus, as the second or last Adam, fulfills God's design for humanity. He is the very first fruits of the harvest of the new humanity to come, the new creation. He alone being not only God, the eternal Son, but being a man, fully human apart from sin. He alone has now taken human nature to that next stage of existence. He is glorified. He has a resurrection body as a human being. It's not the same body. He wasn't resuscitated. He is the only one who right now possesses what we might call resurrection humanity. The new creation in its fullness, both materially and spiritually. If you're a Christian, you're united to him. And you are a new creature. You are truly new, but you're not yet entirely new. Look at you. I mean, just go look in the, in the mirror, okay? Uh, you don't need to work this out too much, do you? If you are a Christian, you are a new creation. Why? Because you, you have been raised up with him in your spirit, but you have yet to be raised up with him in your body, in the resurrection. Christ is the only fully human new creation, you see, uh, in glory. Uh, And therefore, because he is a representative man, just as Adam's sin led to sinfulness of the entire human race, because Adam represented the entire human race, so the benefits of Christ's work, Christ's death and resurrection, Christ the last Adam, the benefits of of his life and death and resurrection will be given to all who belong to him, he says in verse 23. Those who belong to him. Who are those who belong to him? Well, Jesus says, my sheep 
hear my voice, and they follow me. John writes at the beginning of his, of his gospel, he says, to as many as received him, even those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, you see. Everyone, yes, will be raised from the dead, but only those who belong to him will be raised to life. And the other side of the equation is raised to condemnation, to an eternal condemnation. You have at this moment, for some of you, you have to see that and ask yourself if you are in Christ, if you belong to him, if there's any doubt, there's nothing to do. Simply look to him, ask him for his grace to open your eyes, place your faith in Christ, you see. To as many as received him, receive him. To them he gave the life, even those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, you see. And so he is that first fruits. Picture it this way, to move away from fruits, but picture it this way, that there is this long-standing disease, you know, something like what my dad suffered through, Alzheimer's, or the, you think of some form of cancer. And when a human being one day can be fully healed of that disease as a result of a new treatment, that first person would be what? The first fruits. And we would all say, God have mercy, may there be a great harvest after that person, right? Well, Christ is the first person, is the first fruits, right? The first one healed of what? Of everything we've got. <laughs> the, of all sin, all corruption, all death, all suffering, all tears, etc. He is the first fruits. And when he returns, when he says there in his coming, all those who belong to him will be transformed into what he is like. He is now what all believers will one day be. He is now what all believers will one day be. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. <laughs> I hope you have faith in Christ, you see. And so we, if you're a Christian, we await that day. We await the day when we'll follow his footsteps into a completely renewed existence like Jesus. This will involve our bodies being transformed. How will this come about? Will it come about by the very power of God, the same power he uses to create and sustain the universe. Paul says to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, speaking to Christians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's going to happen? Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. How so, Paul? By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Right? Hebrews 1 says that he sustains the universe by the word of his power and by that same power which he exercises by which he can say, let there be light, and there's light, he's going to say, let there be a resurrection. <laughs> and we will be transformed into his likeness. The apostle John, who 
who, whom Jesus loved, who spent time with Jesus, who loved Jesus. He says, Beloved, now we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when he comes, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, you see. Well, I conclude with the very words of Paul at the end of this very chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. How does it happen? How will it happen? Paul tells us how it happens. Why does it happen? Because we're in Christ, if you're a believer. And what he experienced, he did in solidarity with those who belong to him. How is it going to happen? Here is how it's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Hear the word of the Lord. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He means not all of us will die before he returns, right? But we'll all, whether we're living or dead, for Christians, we will be changed, every one of us, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality and when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then and only then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory <laughs> oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Why? Because he was delivered up for our transgressions. Why? Because he was raised for our justification. That's why. So, Beloved and friends who are listening, the gospel means good news. And good news uh, can't involve uh, any sort of call for you to achieve something. Good news, the gospel, is a declaration. It's an announcement of what God has achieved. And he has achieved this great victory over our sin, over our alienation from him, over the grave, over the de death. And he has achieved it through the last Adam, the representative man on our behalf. That is good news. To you, it simply is to respond. To respond to this announcement. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. This is the promise of God. He cannot lie. In John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will 
raise him up on the last day. This is what we call the Christian hope. We're not naive. I know Christians are called naive. We could seem naive if we sort of have this pie in the sky things and pretend that world isn't bad. <laughs> we're, not, we're not naive. We're, we know that we're surrounded by all kinds of brokenness. Loved ones still get sick. Loved ones die. We don't pretend there's no pain now. We can't be naive, but we also must not be cynical. Why? Because we have a living hope, says Peter. We've been made to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, you ask how does somebody keep their equilibrium in this mad world? How do you as a Christian keep your equilibrium? How do you keep your head up with all that you experience and all that you see happening? How you do it? This is how you do it. By keeping your eye focused and your heart nourished and your mind fed with what? The hope, the hope that lies ahead for every one of us. And that's why Paul finishes, and I'll quote his very last verse there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, therefore, because Christ was raised, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray.